RC Top 3, a weekly podcast of the top three stories from Regnum Christi. Pope Benedict XVI, shepherd, father, and co-worker of the truth for the Legionaries of Christ and Regnum Christi. It was over 17 years ago that white smoke billowed from the roof of the Sistine Chapel, and bells rang out the announcement that a new pope had been chosen, after only four ballots and a relatively brief conclave. Cardinal Josef Ratzinger would succeed Pope John Paul II, taking the pontifical name of Benedict XVI. On his election to the papacy in 2005, Pope Benedict XVI took the motto of Cooperatores Veritatis, co-workers of the truth. As we mourn his loss at the age of 95, we remember how he invited the legionaries of Christ and Regnum Christi to be co-workers of the truth with the papacy and the church. A humble teacher. The 24-hour conclave that led to Pope Benedict's swift election to the papacy was one of the quickest in history, and the result came as little surprise to many Catholics around the world, who already knew Cardinal Ratzinger well as the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Many of the legionary priests working and studying in Rome at the time were already quite familiar with the man who had become Pope Benedict as a theologian a cardinal, a prefect, and simply as a fellow priest. Father Jesus Villagrasa, L.C., a general counselor of the congregation, who has also served as a professor, director, and rector at the Pontifical Athenaeum Regina Apostolorum in Rome, shares a memory of a meeting with Cardinal Ratzinger at the Formation Center of the Legionaries of Christ in Rome in 1989. I had only been in college for a couple of years, I was taking the first cycle of philosophical studies. He told us about his own intellectual experience and gave us advice for our academic life. With his proverbial humility, he came across as an older brother and shared in the chores around the college. Father Donald Corey, L.C., a member of the Legionary Community in Rome, was an official in the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith at the Vatican from 1998 to 2003 while Cardinal Ratzinger was prefect, and was immediately struck by the Cardinal's piety and devotion. Usually, on arriving to his office, Cardinal Ratzinger would go to the chapel to pray his breviary, recalls Father Dono. It was noticeable how, in spite of the fact that he was alone, he would follow the series of positions common in the communitarian praying of the breviary. This conveyed a certain fervor that was edifying. To Father Dono, Under the Cardinal's guidance, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith was well organized, and the environment which prevailed among the officials and the other members of the staff was one of a keen sense of responsibility and mutual cooperation at the service of the Church. Cardinal Ratzinger guided the work of the Congregation with his immense theological and historical knowledge, and his experience in ecclesial affairs gained from a life of dedication to the problems and reality of the Church, especially in Germany and in the world, as seen from Rome. His comments were full of good sense and Christian wisdom, and it was a joy and a formative experience for me, as a relatively young priest, to participate in the weekly formal discussions on the different cases sent to the congregation, mainly by bishops worldwide, says Father Dono. I learned a lot from him during these meetings, which matured my sensus ecclesiae. The cardinal guided the proceedings with the tact of a real gentleman, 
He asked questions when he needed clarification and thanked each person for his or her contribution. At the end of the dialogue, the many reflections were formulated in a precise conclusion or decree that indicated a path of response to the question that was taken into consideration. It also appeared to Father Dono that, from the beginning, Cardinal Ratzinger had a substantially positive view of the Legionaries of Christ. He liked our community celebration of the liturgy, especially the community singing of the Gregorian chant. He appreciated our devotion to the See of Peter and faithful allegiance to the Church's magisterial teaching. He appreciated the seriousness given to our formation, both ecclesiastical and human. Father Michael Ryan, L.C., director of the Fidelis Institute at the Athenaeum, recalls hearing a story about Pope Benedict that paints the picture of a man of simplicity and humility. Cardinal Ratzinger walked across St. Peter's Square every day to go to his work at the Congregation for the Faith. One day, a family met him and asked him for a photograph, showing him the camera. The Cardinal thought that the man wanted him to take a photo of the family for him, and he held out his hand to take the camera in order to photograph the family, when what they were actually asking for was a photo of the Cardinal. It is just one little instance in which we can see the simplicity and humility of the Cardinal, who was not put out by the fact that someone asked him to be their photographer. Father Michael shares his own experience meeting Cardinal Ratzinger during a question-and-answer session at the Athenaeum. It was a joy to hear his lecture, as it was for all his homilies and audiences, and then appreciate the ease and gentleness when he answered questions, showing his immense knowledge and memory, but never making it weigh on the audience. Shortly after Pope Benedict's election, Father Michael had the opportunity to concelebrate a Mass with him. After the Mass, he greeted each priest, recalls Father Michael. When he shook hands with me, he said, How is philosophy going? He actually remembered having been with us at the Athenaeum on that previous occasion as a cardinal. It was a sign of his great memory. Father Pedro Barajon, L.C., rector of the European University of Rome, remembers with fondness the visits Pope Benedict made to the International College of the Legionaries of Christ and the Athenaeum Regino Postulorum. On the visit to the International College, he shared his own experience of the intellectual formation necessary for a priest to develop his specific mission, and he presented us with a very appealing vision of intellectual training that opened horizons for teachers and students. Father Pedro also recalls personal insights and wisdom shared by Pope Benedict at various theological congresses and conferences. In all of them, with great human, theological, and spiritual finesse, he presented the difficult challenges, but also the new opportunities that were open to the Church for the new evangelization, and the fundamental role that theology played in this mission. A Call to Renewal In 2005, while serving as prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, Cardinal Ratzinger began an investigation into accusations of grave misconduct against Father Marcial Maciel, founder of the Legionaries of Christ and Regnum Christi. A year later, after his election to the papacy, in light of the findings from the investigation, Pope Benedict invited Father Maciel to a life of prayer and penance and to renounce all public ministry. Soon after, Pope Benedict initiated a year-long apostolic visitation to the institutions of the Legion of Christ, conducted by five bishops who submitted their conclusions to the Pope. 
The Holy Father then appointed pontifical delegates to the Congregation of the Legionaries of Christ and the consecrated members of Regnum Christi, and eventually the lay members of Regnum Christi as well, putting into motion a thorough, thoughtful, and prayerful process of revision and renewal. This process of renewal resulted in the creation of the Societies of Apostolic Life of the consecrated women of Regnum Christi and the lay consecrated men of Regnum Christi, as well as the revision and approval of the statutes of the Regnum Christi Federation and the constitutions of the Legionaries of Christ. Just as importantly, the process brought about a renewal in the hearts of Legionaries, consecrated, and lay Regnum Christi members across the world. As Father Donal explains, Pope Benedict played a providential role not only in Regnum Christi's renewal, but also its survival. When the Legion was struck by the blow that followed after the discovery of the double life of the founder, some ecclesiasticals were of the idea that the institution should be disbanded, Father Donal recalls. From his personal knowledge of the Legion, Pope Benedict was convinced that there was a substantial core of validity in our life and took the wise decision to name Cardinal Velazio de Paulis as our guide in the process of renewal that the Church requested us to embrace. He also named Father, now Cardinal, Girlanda as one of the assistants of Cardinal de Paulis. The wisdom, time, and dedication of these two men to our cause speak highly of the prudent disposition of His Holiness Benedict XVI. Father Pedro agrees that Pope Benedict's appointment of pontifical delegates was a great gift from the Church to Regnum Christi. The pontificate of Pope Benedict XVI has been of great help to the evolution of the Legionaries of Christ and Regnum Christi, from the moment he initiated the process of accompanying the Legion with the appointment of the pontifical delegates. At a difficult historical moment, as we discovered the truth of our Founder's life and began the slow work of institutional renewal, Pope Benedict helped to purify what needed to be purified, while appreciating those elements of the movement that were valid and to be maintained. For this call to renewal and restoration, and for the gift of the accompaniment of the Church throughout the entire process, the Legionaries of Christ and consecrated and lay members of Regnum Christi owe Pope Benedict an enormous debt of gratitude, according to Father Samir Advani, L.C., a Canadian legionary who serves as Professor of Sacred Theology at the Athenaeum in Rome. He showed us true fatherly love and concern, being patient with our shortcomings, but challenging and demanding in his insistence on our undertaking a process of true and profound conversion, says Father Samir. In a very concrete way, we would not be where we are today without Pope Benedict. However, Father Samir feels that Legionaries and Regnum Christi members would be remiss if they stopped there in evaluating what Pope Benedict means to them and to the Federation. A Message of Redemption I am convinced that Ratzinger's theology is an untapped mine that all of us in Regnum Christi urgently need to start exploring in a systematic manner, a treasure trove in which we will discover new depths and facets to our vocation as apostles of God's love in the 21st century, says Father Samir. The centrality of a deeply personal and transformative love of Christ, based on the discovery of God's love for us, and the call to transmit this experience to others, so that they too can discover the treasure that we have, should be themes that reverberate in a very profound manner in our hearts, as legionaries and Regnum Christi members. 
This in-depth study of Pope Benedict's theological output, spanning well over 30 years, is already well underway within the institutions of Redmond Christi and the Legionaries of Christ. In recent years, the Athenaeum has been offering courses dedicated to presenting and deepening its theological teaching through a chair promoted by the Ratzinger Pope Benedict XVI Foundation. At Francisco de Vitoria University in Madrid, an Expanded Reason Award is handed out annually to recognize academic work at the service of the truth, inspired by Pope Benedict's vision of rationality sensitive to the truth of the human person. Knowing how to combine respect for tradition through the aid of sacred scripture with a critical and constant dialogue with contemporary culture and a sound analysis of reality are some of the teachings that we must welcome from Pope Benedict in our own theological formation as legionaries of Christ and in the Christian formation of the members of Regnum Christi, says Father Pedro. I believe that one way to thank Pope Benedict is to collect his entire theological legacy, study it, and deepen it. It is perhaps Pope Benedict's episcopal motto, Cooperatoris Veritatis, co-workers of truth, that best exemplifies his relationship with the legionaries of Christ and all of Regnum Christi. He has invited its members to be co-workers of the truth with him, with the Church, and with each other. Pope Benedict's life, as theologian, cardinal, prefect, and pope, marked by a fearless passion for the truth and obedience to the living Church, has been both example and guide for the Legion of Christ and Regnum Christi members. And it is through the legacy of his theology, founded on the simple and radical truth that we are redeemed only in and by love, that his accompaniment of the movement continues. I truly believe his lasting gift to us is his Christocentric theology, which will help us discover our own identity, spirituality, and vocation within the Church in much greater depth, says Father Samir. Thank you, Pope Benedict, for a life of service to the Church and for never tiring to proclaim Christ to us. Editorial Benedict the Great, His Spiritual and Theological Legacy By Samir Advani, L.C. Zenit News, Rome, December 31, 2022 On the 19th of April, 2005, Josef Ratzinger walked hesitantly out onto the balcony of St. Peter's Basilica as the 265th leader of the Catholic Church. In a shy, almost apologetic tone, he then compared himself to his predecessor, telling the cheering thousands gathered below him that after the great John Paul II, the cardinals had elected just a simple, humble worker in the vineyard of the Lord. The contrast was hardly an exaggeration. Church officials across the world knew that Ratzinger was a brilliant theologian who had courageously and even heroically defended Catholic doctrine in the confusing and turbulent years of the post-conciliar crisis. But they also knew that, humanly speaking, the German possessed little of the personal charism, outgoing personality, infectious energy, and sense of the dramatic that had helped endear John Paul to the world. Instead, Ratzinger was quiet and reserved, a scholar far more comfortable in the classroom or library than on the international stage, a private man who quite deliberately avoided the limelight. Ratzinger's election as pontiff was thus largely shrugged off at the time, even by commentators within the church. 
as primarily a nod to continuity, as a decision by the cardinal electors to have a kind of buffer papacy that would allow the seeds planted during the 26-year reign of John Paul the Great to bear fruit and ripen. Benedict was chosen to guide the Church into the new postmodern world of relativism and radical skepticism, along a course that had largely already been set out, in other words. No one expected him to dramatically shake things up. No one foresaw that his final public mass eight years later would end with what the New York Times aptly described as a deafening standing ovation that lasted for minutes. No one foresaw that, as we contemplate the extraordinary gift of his life and work in 2023, the faithful are already beginning to call him Benedict the Great. A Spiritual Giant Benedict XVI's name and legacy will always be closely linked to his decision, in February 2013, to resign from the papacy. It made him the first pope to voluntarily relinquish the office of Peter since Celestine V in 1294, and sent shockwaves throughout the Church. It is thus also the best place to start in our effort to try and understand who Ratzinger really was. The decision, Benedict said at the time, was taken in full freedom and was motivated by the realization that he no longer had the strength to adequately carry out all the tasks required of the Pope. But there was also more to the question than just crass pragmatism. For in Benedict's mind, it also opened up a new way for him to remain at the side of the crucified Lord, a new form in which he could participate in that Petrine ministry through the service of prayer instead of active governance. The Lord is calling me to climb the mountain, to devote myself even more to prayer and meditation, he thus claimed in his last Angelus as pontiff. But this does not mean abandoning the church. Indeed, if God is asking me to do this, it is so that I can continue to serve the church with the same dedication and the same love with which I have done thus far, but in a way that is better suited to my age and my strength. This dramatic insistence on the absolute primacy of prayer in the life of every individual and the entire church, and his corresponding understanding of Christianity as the love story between God and humanity, is actually a side of Ratzinger that has not been sufficiently underlined up until now. Paradoxically, it could actually constitute his greatest legacy and mark him out as a spiritual master for generations to come. Ratzinger was convinced, in fact, that at its very core, Christianity was not a series of ideas, doctrines, and ethical commandments, but the living encounter with the God who, as love, freely chose to enter into a relationship of love with each and every human being, and the vast majority of his meditations, homilies, conferences, and even his more theologically sophisticated writings, all revolved around this simple but profoundly spiritual central idea. God created the universe to enter into a love story with humankind. He created it so that love can exist. He wrote when explaining the book of Genesis in 1986, for example. Salvation history was not a small event on a poor planet in the immensity of the universe, but the motive for everything, the motive for creation, he then added in 2008, before concluding, everything is created so that this story can exist the encounter between God and his creature. 
in Deus Caritas Est in 2005, he likewise proclaimed that God is the absolute and ultimate source of all being. But this universal principle of creation, the Logos, primordial reason, is at the same time a lover with all the passion of a true love. And two years later, in his message for Lent, he explained that God's love for man was not only agape, the self-giving love of one who seeks the good of another, but also eros, or in other words, the love of someone who desires to possess what he lacks, the love of someone who yearns for union with the beloved. Eros is part of God's very heart. The Almighty awaits the yes of his creatures, as a young bridegroom that of his bride. He wrote before adding, On the cross, it is God himself who begs the love of his creature. He is thirsty for the love of every one of us. Texts like these abound, and through them Ratzinger interpreted the central tenets of Christianity, of creation, salvation history, the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ, Mary, the Church, baptism, and the Eucharist, as the successive chapters in the love story between God and man, as the unfolding of what he called a mysticism of personal love, in which God and man increasingly become one in spirit. And if this deeply spiritual theological understanding of Christianity was not enough, Ratzinger also left us a precious testimony to how it had shaped his own pilgrimage on earth. In the last days of his pontificate, for example, he beautifully described faith as nothing other than the touch of God's hand in the night of the world, and so, in the silence, to hear the word, to see love. And, speaking to those who were worried about the future of the church after his abdication, he then added, I should like to invite all of us to renew our firm confidence in the Lord, to entrust ourselves like children in God's arms, certain that those arms always hold us, enabling us to press forward each day, even when the going is rough. I want everyone to feel loved by that God who gave His Son for us and who has shown us His infinite love. I want everyone to feel the joy of being a Christian. In conversation with Peter Zewald a few years later, he stated, I see Him, Jesus, directly before me. He is, of course, always great and full of mystery. And just a few months before his death, he wrote that, In light of the hour of judgment, the grace of being a Christian becomes all the more clear to me. It grants me knowledge, and indeed friendship, with the judge of my life, and thus allows me to pass confidently through the dark door of death. What all of this tells us is that while Ratzinger has always been known and respected, even by his detractors, as the voice that has championed faith's need for reason and reason's need for faith, as the heroic defender of the Christian roots of Europe, and as the intellectual, who perhaps more than anyone else in the 20th century, has explored the meaning of Christian identity and mission in the modern world, he may very well be known to future generations, not primarily as Ratzinger the theologian, but as Ratzinger, the mystic of God's love for humanity. A Theology for Our Time and for all times. None of this is meant to detract from the quantity and quality of Ratzinger's theology, of course. Hundreds of scholarly articles and books have already been written about his Christology, 
ecclesiology, theology of revelation, and anthropology, and thousands more will almost certainly be produced. The sheer volume of his output, the collected works of his writings, span 15 volumes, and most of these are well over a thousand pages, means that experts in the field will be poring over his texts for years to come. But more than any of his particular discoveries or insights, it is the style of Ratzinger's theology that sets him apart from the rest. On the one hand, his was a theology that belonged entirely to the 20th century, and that was shaped very explicitly as a response to the upheavals in the faith of the ordinary Christian that the implementation of the Council, liberation theology, and then relativism and postmodernism implied. His preference for Augustine, whom he admitted struck him with the power of all his human passion and depth, was also linked to this idea. The African's personalism was easy to reconcile with the drama and difficulty of Christian existence in the modern world that Ratzinger was interested in, and he thus found him much closer to his own style and theological concern than the impressive but coldly dispassionate theology of Aquinas. As one commentator put it, Ratzinger was thus no disconnected spiritual writer living in an ivory tower. He wrote with the Bible in the one hand and the newspaper in the other, and he set himself the task of trying to truly understand, empathize with, and engage the questioning faith of the contemporary Christian. But precisely in his attempt to provide 20th century man with an answer to his questions about the meaning of Christian faith, existence, and mission, Ratzinger developed a theology that became valid for all times. The key lay in his distinction between what belonged to the true core of the gospel message and what was only a secondary, cultural form of understanding and expressing that truth of revelation. And while Ratzinger resolutely defended the former against all the attacks and misguided attempts to interpret away the inevitable scandal of the Incarnation, Cross, and Resurrection, he was surprisingly generous in admitting that the latter received a necessary service of purification and enrichment in its encounter with the other. The image of Ratzinger as Panzerkardinal and as God's Rottweiler that was popularized by his liberal opponents in the 80s and 90s as a slur thus tells only half the story. For it ignores that it was the very same Ratzinger who also claimed in 1986 that the truth is never monotonous, nor is it ever exhausted in a single form because our mind beholds it only in fragments. And in 1997, that I need to be willing to allow my narrow understanding of the truth to be broken down. I shall learn my own truth better if I understand the other person and allow myself to be moved along the road to the God who is ever greater, certain that I never hold the whole truth about God in my own hands, but am always a learner, on pilgrimage toward it, on a path that has no end. This is not the place to develop these ideas in detail. But the point is that the Ratzinger, who famously called Luther a Felix culpa and a necessary correction to excessive Roman centralization, the Ratzinger who called the world's religions necessary parts of salvation history, and the Benedict who created the Anglican ordinariate in the hope of allowing these separated Christians to enter into the fullness of the faith and the church, while simultaneously allowing them to maintain as much of their own liturgical and spiritual tradition and patrimony as possible, is as equally and authentically Ratzingerian as the theologian who resolutely defended the divinity of Christ 
against the excesses of the historical critical reduction of him to the mere man Jesus, bravely called out the errors that the Marxist interpretation of the faith espoused by liberation theology implied, and fearlessly proclaimed that science and technology cannot fill the void in man's heart that cries out for God. This is not to say that there are two Ratzingers, the defender of the faith and the man of authentic dialogue and the humble search for the truth are one and the same. They are two sides of the same coin. And this one Ratzinger thus constructed a unified theology characterized by its vision of both unity and plurality, of a legitimate plurality of cultural historical languages, theologies, communities, and churches arranged symphonically within the unity of the faith and the universal church. In an ecclesial situation increasingly divided between ultra-conservatives and radical progressives, the theological foundation that Ratzinger provided for what he called a diversified pluriform unity in the church thus offers a nuanced but balanced middle path that challenges the assumptions, prejudices, and rigidness of both sides. More than any of his single texts or conferences, it is this daring theological vision, this style of a faithful but generous theology, that Ratzinger will be remembered for. Ratzinger the mystic will thus also go down in history as Ratzinger the theologian. And one day, perhaps not too far in the future, they may simply be united under the title Benedict the Great. Father Samir Advani, L.C., is Professor of Dogmatic Theology, Pontifical Athenaeum Regina Apostolorum, Rome. A name above the rest. Dear friends in Christ, Today's feast of the most holy name of Jesus is easy to overlook. That is partly because of the great solemnities of Christmas and Mary, Mother of God, that precede and overshadow it. It's also partly because the feast is liturgically categorized as an optional memorial, meaning that a priest doesn't have to celebrate it as the Mass of the day. It's unfortunate if the feast gets short attention. Devotion to the Holy Name is deeply rooted in Scripture, especially in the Acts of the Apostles. Just repeating the name reverently can instill as much hope and comfort in a believer as it does fear in a demon. Reverence for the name of Jesus, which can be translated, God saves, can be a way to distance ourselves from the coarseness that often surrounds us in the media and in public life. That's no small thing nowadays, since nastiness in public speech portends a culture in decline. To push back on that trend, to use our words for the glory of God, is one small but powerful way to witness to our faith in day-to-day -day life. What does that mean in practice? It means always using the name of Jesus and God reverently. It can include bowing our heads at the mention of Jesus' name, even in private conversations. These little gestures reinforce a spirit of reverence within us. And such reverence is noticed. It can even begin to affect the speech of those around us. To grow in love for the name, it might help to reflect on Jesus' power to bring peace into our lives. To that end, our retreat guide on Jesus calming the storm might be worth praying. Consider doing it for the sake of the name. In Christ, 
Father Edward McAmill, LC. Ask a Priest Contributor. For more resources, visit www.regnumchristi.org or download the Regnum Christi English app today.